0: Well, Merry Christmas again. Glad to be together on the second week of Advent. And we're going we're gonna to jump right in to the scriptures this morning. We're in Isaiah 9. Uh, the great prophecy about the coming newborn King. So, Mitch, do you think I can, I can preach this in less than a half hour? It's going to be tight. We'll see what we can do here. But uh, well, one thing we see from this, this was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Which means God is a planner. Uh, How many of you guys are are done with your Christmas shopping? Wow, there's a a good number, a couple of you guys out there. So you guys are the planners. Most people, uh, I I gotta tell you, I haven't even bought anything for my wife yet. I mean, I'm not going to. But eventually, I will, by by the time that that Christmas gets here. Uh, But, you know, there's some people who plan. They plan months and months in advance. Uh, There's some people who shop on December 26th. Because you get all the good deals, right? For all their Christmas decorations and everything for the following year. Some people are really big planners. And some gifts, they take a special amount of planning. Uh, there's one gift that I'm really looking forward to giving my wife someday. Um, not this year. Lord will, I mean, unless, you know, hey, God opens the floodgates. But I really want to take her to Hawaii. So my wife, uh, she's traveled a lot as a military kid. And uh, she's been to every state... Except Hawaii. So she's been to all 49 states, at least driven through every state. So one of these Christmases, or maybe it'll be an anniversary, I want to take her to Hawaii, get to, to that last state. But that's going to take a lot of planning. Uh, option two would be like one of these commercials where she finds a, a set of car keys in the stocking. That might happen too, someday, you know? Uh, once I'm finished with the Dave Ramsey plan, right, Rich? That'll be, then maybe we'll get there. We've got, got a while to go. Uh, God is a planner. In fact, God has been planning this gift, the gift of Christmas, for 700 years, at least. (laughs) At least when this uh, prophecy comes about, he's saying, this is a gift I've been waiting to give you. I've been looking forward to give my people the promise of the hope of the ages, the promise of Jesus. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 9. There is an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to, to follow along. But let's look at how Jesus fulfills the hope of the ages Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Some of this should be pretty familiar, but we read this. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Jesus fulfills the hope of the ages. And look with me, if you, if again, in the bulletin if you want to see where we're going. But in verse 1, he raises up humility. Raises up humility as he fulfills our hopes. He starts off talking about a former time of gloom, a former time of darkness. In fact, if you've never read the book of Isaiah, uh, it's a long book, 66 chapters. It's a take, it'll take you a, quite a while to sit there and read through the whole thing. Uh, there's a lot of darkness in Isaiah. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of rebellion. Uh, there's a lot of a failure of Israel to obey the Lord. And a lot of punishment that comes upon Israel because of it. There's a lot of gloom in the book of Isaiah. There are glimmers of hope, like we see here, but a lot of gloom. In fact, in the passage immediately before what we just read, before this hope of the ages, this coming Messiah, we read about how far into darkness Israel had fallen. Actually, they become interested in the occult, Uh, they become interested in things like mediums and spiritists and things that are dark spiritually. Uh, we see that right beforehand. They turn away from the Lord. And instead of inquiring of their God. They inquire of dark forces. And just as a little side note. I've noticed this tends to happen from time to time. Anecdotally. Um, when people reject the Lord. Uh, sometimes it, they, you know, they just at first. I don't believe in God. I don't follow God. But the further and the further they get from God. Sometimes you'll even see them dabbling into things. That are even darker than that. Uh, it shows the level of rebellion. That Israel has fallen into. In fact, in verse 2, we're not there yet, but he describes them as falling into a deep darkness. And uh, I'm trying to keep up with my Hebrew. It's really rough. Uh, But so I was working through the Hebrew and I came across that word for deep darkness. And I said, ah, that looks familiar. I recognize that word, the Hebrew word salmavet. Because that's the word used in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That same word is used to describe the level of darkness, spiritual darkness, that Israel is in. A deep darkness falling away from the Lord, being under his judgment and his punishment, but here he says in verse one that 's the former gloom, uh, something has changed, something is now redirected where israel 's at. a hope has, been, has has been given to them, and that is the coming of the Messiah. Look what he says in verse one again, in the former time he brought in contempt into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now if you don't know what he's talking about there, uh, Israel was broken up into its 12 tribes, basically. And each of those tribes was given a portion of the land of Israel. The 12 tribes were the 12 sons of Jacob. When they took the land of Israel, each of them took a different portion. This is the northern portion. Now this is above the Jordan, beyond the Jordan in the north, right around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, So this is what eventually became Galilee. Uh, But before that, this northern portion of Zebulun and Naphtali uh, Became the northern kingdom of Israel So just a little brief history here of of, of Israel They broke into two different countries essentially Northern and southern And the northern one was more rebellious than the southern one (laughs) And eventually was conquered by the Assyrian empire They were exiled from the land The land became mixed um, And eventually it became under contempt shame. Uh, it was a place where the, the ten tribes were, and they were scattered and basically lost. And what Isaiah is saying, that place in the north, uh, the place you would not expect, <laughs> a place that's been ravaged and devastated by the Assyrians, that's under the contempt of God, that's the place I'm going to use to do this work with the Messiah. And at the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Isn't it interesting that, of course, we know Jesus spent the vast majority of his ministry not in the southern area, not in Jerusalem, not around the temple, well, that's where he was crucified, uh, not there in the big city, but really most of his time in the northern region of Galilee, which was looked down upon by the time of Jesus. In John 7, one person says, Are you too from Galilee? One Pharisee searched and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. <laughs> There's no spiritual prophets that arise from that northern region. It's a place under contempt. Nathaniel, who eventually became a follower, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth, which was a small town where Jesus was raised in the northern region? Actually, we got a chance to visit Galilee, beautiful area, actually. Uh, but it is sort of separated from all the action. All the action happens there in Jerusalem. In the northern region, not so much. Here's an interesting thing. I have a map um, so you can kind of get a sense of this. There was a city not far from, Gaz- from Nazareth uh, called Sepphoris. And if you can kind of squint your eyes and see there, I've circled two different places. One of them is Nazareth. That's where Jesus was raised. There in Galilee. There in the northern region. And not far from that is Sepphoris. Now, how many people have ever heard of Sepphoris? One? Maybe one. Okay, maybe a couple others. Here's the interesting thing about Sephora. Sepphoris was considered, Herod Antipas made it the capital of Galilee, the capital of his government. Josephus, the famous historian, called it the ornament of all Galilee. It was the largest city in Galilee. There was a theater that Herod built in Sepphoris, and it was considered to be an exceptionally strong fortress. Guess how many times Sephoris is mentioned in the Bible? Zero. Doesn't that show something about the priority of God? (laughs) The biggest major city in Galilee doesn't even appear once in the entire Bible. But here's a little small town called Nazareth that God chooses to raise up the Messiah. He comes in humility. It's, It's sort of a small town. Actually, I got a picture of. Well, look, this is where the uh, Sermon on the Mount, they believe, was given. Just beautiful. Countryside, small town. Just like John Mellencamp saying, you know, it's a, he was born and raised in a small town. That's where he was from. Uh, wasn't from Jerusalem. Wasn't from Rome. and it wasn't from the center of activity at that point in time. Um, what's the modern day sort of Rome? Wasn't from like a New York City. Uh, John Lennon said, if I had lived in Roman times, I'd lived in Rome. Where else? Today, America is the Roman Empire, and New York is Rome itself. But not the Messiah. It comes from a a small town. In fact, his whole life was surrounded by humility, wasn't it? Born in a stable. Laid in a manger. And we've kind of romanticized that imagery. Uh, A manger is a feeding trough for the animals. It stinks. And there's probably little bugs in it. And it's not a nice, clean place for a baby. Comes in humility. He's raised in a small town. The son of a carpenter. Spent the majority of his life. Probably acting as a carpenter. Following sort of the example of his father. The trade of his father. Had no formal education. And he wasn't trained by one of the great rabbis. Shimei. Or Hillel. Of his day. Uh, it wasn't trained by Gamaliel. As the apostle Paul was. Uh, had no real formal education. Raised in the backwoods. And eventually... The ultimate statement of his humility, he dies the death of a criminal on the cross. As far as we know, Jesus never left Israel, except for maybe on the borders, the Decapolis and so forth, never traveled widely, never wrote a single book directly, and yet he comes as the one to save us. God values humility. The whole of our salvation is based on a humble Savior. In fact, it's important for us to get this. If we follow a humble Savior, we follow Him in humility. God opposes the proud, but He exalts the humble. We battle against the sense of pride in our hearts. We recognize that the first will be last. The last will be first. The greatest will be a servant of all. We follow a humble Savior born in a manger, raised in the backwoods of Galilee, who died on the cross as a criminal and came as our savior to redeem us. Nothing stands out more in this world, I think, than humility. Uh, you know, you really want to shock people. Be a genuinely humble person. You don't, you don't see too many of them. Most of us have just some pride in us and we want to stand up for our own ego and we want to stand up for our right and make a point to make sure nobody disrespects us. And, but to follow Christ is to follow him in Humility he comes not from judea but from galilee look what else we see in verses 2 to 5 he brings spiritual light and victory to the world now we get at the content of why god is sending his messiah to the world it says here the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of darkness on them has light shone this balance between or this opposition between darkness and light and then he multiplied the nation and increased their joy as if the joy of the harvest think about it in an agricultural setting there 's no greater joy joyful time of the year than harvest I mean you work hard all year round you do the work the ground you plant your seed and you weed it and do all you can until the harvest comes and that 's the time to now rest and celebrate well first work and harvest everything, but then rest and celebrate and enjoy the fruit of all your work and he 's saying this Messiah will come and bring Joy, As if the joy of harvest. But more than that, victory as well. Spiritual victory. Verse 4. The yoke of his burden. The staff up for his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor. Those are common illustrations to talk about the oppression of one nation. And unjust oppression of another. He says, you have broken them as on the day of Midian. We'll talk about Midian in just a minute. And Verse 5 brings out again this idea of victory that he brings. Every boot of the warrior, every garment that's filled with blood, will be burnt up and used for fuel. He brings a spiritual victory and spiritual light into the darkness. A spiritual victory. Now that reference to Midian you may or may not be familiar with. It refers back to the story of Gideon. So this is hundreds of years before Isaiah. I mentioned Isaiah is 700 years before Jesus. This is hundreds of years before that. Uh, Israel is oppressed by a nation called Midian, by the Midianites. The Midianites were so numerous, they described like a swarm of locusts, an uncountable number. And they severely oppress Israel. Israel cries out to God for help, and God raises up a man named Gideon. Uh, just like we have Gideons today, right? This is what they're named after, Gideon. And this is why Gideon is, is so interesting and so um, important for us. God raises up Gideon and says, I'm going to use you, Gideon, to, bring, to break the rod of the oppressor of the Midianites. And so Gideon gets his armies together, all of Israel, which is still considerably less uh, than the Midianites. And God says, no, you have too many. That's, that's too many. We need to narrow it down. And so he has a sort of process has to do with the way they lap up the water to narrow it down until eventually it's only 300 people <laughs> against the swarm of Midianites. And God brings victory in kind of an ingenious way, if you haven't read it, from Judges 7 and 8. He brings, they basically stand around the huge Midianite army at nighttime, and they smash jars and create confusion. And Midian begins to fight one another, and then they flee, thinking that they're being attacked in the middle of the night. And God brings victory through raising up one man in his small group. He uses Gideon to free them from oppression, even as he says, this coming Messiah. Will bring freedom from a spiritual oppression. Just as a, a quick little side note, I love the story of Gideon because I, I feel like it's it's we have something in common here. Not just because we have Gideons in our church, which we do, uh, but because we're relatively small in number as a church. We're bigger than other churches, smaller than others, but relatively small. And yet, God has enabled us to really have a pretty powerful kingdom impact here uh, by our by, by the ministries that we support here and around the world. Uh, with our missionaries And the ministries right here in town It's so great We feel like we're like Gideon's army An army that God is using above and beyond What their numbers might might reveal This coming Messiah brings spiritual victory He also brings light into the darkness uh, What a powerful image I know I've talked about this before But I think it's so telling Darkness is, is, is not a thing Darkness is the absence of light It's nothing <laughs> When there isn't something, you have darkness. But when light comes into darkness, it immediately dispels it. Think about that. You, you don't have a, a, a ray of darkness. <laughs> you have a ray of light that breaks through the darkness. And darkness can't do anything about it. The light comes in and shines in. And even when you think about it, light is a, is a mystery. It's, a, it's something that we don't even fully understand. Uh, light is a, a particle in a wave. Uh, what do I, I mean by that? It's a particle. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's, it's it has an atomic makeup. It's 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 a substance. You know, it's it's something that exists in this world as a, as matter. Uh, you think about a black hole. You know, a black hole sucks in all light. When a star collapses and the density of that star is so strong, it sucks in anything that tries to go by it. It even sucks in light. Why? Because light is a particle. It can be sucked into something. And yet, it's also a wave. It's a, like a radio wave or a we got all this internet waves flowing through the air right now, right? It's not, not a substance, it's just it's a wave. Well, how can light be both? I don't know. <laughs> no one knows. It's a mystery. We don't, we don't quite understand it. We know that light is, is necessary for life. Uh, light brings energy, it brings heat, it brings life. Without light, there would be no light. The further we get away from light... The darker things get. I mean, the more dangerous things get. I mean, think about the ocean. The the further down you go, away from the light, what do you get? These weird creatures like the anglerfish. The ugly looking, this ugly looking thing with this little light that traps in its prey. Or you go and dig a hole in the ground and you pull out these ugly little creatures from under the, the ground. The further away from the light, the stranger things get. So he's using that as a powerful illustration of Christ bringing spiritual light into our darkness. And where there is light, there is life. Where there is light, there is clarity, this truth, this understanding, this hope. Into this deep darkness comes spiritual light. And I just want to say that spiritual power comes from Jesus. That's where it comes from. The power to save us comes from Jesus. So if you're here and you recognize that you're a sinner, if you, don't, if you don't think you're a sinner, I, I don't know what else to say to you, really. I mean, uh, just, you know, there's not really much to say except kind of look introspectively. Are you sure you really don't think you're a sinner? But if you grasp this, and most people do, Christian or non-Christian, you grasp that you're not a perfect person, you're a sinner, and you need a Savior. <laughs> that Savior is Christ. He has the power to save. He has the power to forgive and to transform. He has the power to transform. There is no other power in this world that really, truly can transform us. I was uh, standing in a principal's office recently and uh, I read on the wall a quote from Nelson Mandela, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And I love Nelson Mandela, but I disagree with him. I I think I agree more with C.S. Lewis. Education just makes man a more clever devil. (laughs) And when you look at history, that's exactly what education does. It doesn't usually transform the world for good. It is important. I'm not trying to downgrade it. just saying it doesn't have the power to really transform us for good. Where does that power come from? It comes from the gospel. It comes from Jesus. And Jesus has the power to redeem us, not just in this world, but for eternity. When you think about it, all earthly powers are all temporary. (laughs) Even when you think of earthly governments... And you should vote and you should express your political opinions. Be wise about it. And we don't have to agree. The church's role is to make disciples. You as disciples get involved as salt and light in the world. And we can always agree and disagree on different issues and things like that. Nevertheless, friends, government can't ultimately save us. Because even in government we see what? Death. Some of you guys watched the uh, funeral of George H.W. Bush. It was a pretty beautiful one. I have a picture. had to find a copyright-free one, so uh, there's, there's a nice one there. Um, but one of the things that was interesting was a nice law. It was a state funeral, which they offered to presidents. There's only been a handful of state funerals officially in our, our country, and this is not a statement of whether you liked his politics or not, but uh, most people would say George H.W. Bush was a very decent man. But uh, one of the things you may have noticed is the, the in the beginning of the service, he's called Mr. President. Number 41... George H.W. Bush, all these great titles, commander in chief. And then as they get closer to the end of the funeral and to his burial, they refer to him as our dear brother George. And I think that's not unintentional. At the end of the day, we are just men and women who are mortal. And our our time comes and goes. And as we know about presidencies, it can switch overnight. From one to the next. But Jesus is setting up an eternal kingdom that has no end, which is what we come to here in this last section. Verses 6 and 7, Jesus brings in the rule of the kingdom of God. Look what he says, verse 6 just begins to describe more carefully this coming Messiah, who he is, what he's like. And he describes very carefully he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's Hebrew parallelism, which is common. Uh, You say the same thing twice, but sometimes with a slight difference. And sometimes that slight difference is very important. A child is given, born of a virgin, born of a woman entering our world. We celebrate that on Christmas. Christmas Day celebrates the birth of Jesus. A child is given, a child is born, but a son is given. Uh, The son pre-exists the birth. He's given by the Father to this world, even as the child is born. And the government will be on his shoulders. What's that all about? His rule, his reign. He brings in a kingdom rule, but not a kingdom like this world. Uh, what is his name? We're called to give him four titles. Some translations have five. I think four is probably the better translation, but either way, it still gets to the same point. Let's look briefly at those four titles. Wonderful counselor. <laughs> Speaks about his wisdom. You know, when you're making a big decision in life, what do you want? You want to go to a counselor. Certain people you call. I call my dad. I call pastor friends. I call you know, other people that I look up to and, and seek wisdom. No one is as wise as the wonderful counselor. He's infinitely wise. Mighty God. Gabor El. He is the champion. The hero. The mighty warrior. The judge like Gideon. But he's more than that. He's Gibor El. He's God. There is no limit to his power. He's the great champion who comes, but is God Himself with us. Everlasting Father. There is no end to Him. He's eternal, both in beginning and in end. It might be strange to think of Jesus as our Father. Um, obviously, God the Father is God the Father. Jesus is the Son. But Jesus, in His relationship to us, is a fatherlike figure. He is the one who cares for us, oversees us, loves us. He acts as an everlasting father in relation to us. And then fourthly, the prince of peace. His government is not one of military strength to conquer this world, at least not in his first coming. He comes as the one who brings peace. His government will have no end. And he describes it as one of justice and of righteousness. Nothing like the kingdoms of this world, which rise and fall overnight. As we can just look at the last... 100 years, and the amount of kingdoms that have risen and have fallen. I think of uh, the Third Reich. He said, we're going to bring in a reign of a 1,000 years. By 1945, they're done and dispelled. We're talking about a kingdom that will never end, a spiritual kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, uh, the rule of God, the government of God here, uh, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, you know one of his... Perhaps the most common subject of his teaching was? The kingdom of God is at hand. His main focus was that we have now a kingdom here present with us. And it's invisible and eternal. It's the rule and the reign of God. It transcends geography. It transcends nations. It transcends ethnicities. It transcends races. It transcends languages. It transcends time. And it even transcends death. Because those in glory are still part of this eternal kingdom. He is the one whose government. The government rests upon his shoulders. And he rules in righteousness. And in justice. Friends. I wonder as we think about the application of this here. Do you recognize the rule and the reign of God now in your life? Because that's what the kingdom is. It's not being a citizen of any kingdom of this world. It's talking about. Recognizing the Lordship of Christ. In order for there to be a kingdom, you need a king. And we have a king. And his name is Jesus. I'll just ask this question Can you say, and this is, what I think, what this is the purpose and sort of the point, the direction of discipleship? Can you say of Jesus as king, whatever you want, Lord? Whatever you want. Wherever you want me to go. I'll go. Whatever you want me to do. I'll do it. Whatever you want me to say. To whomever you want me to say it. I'll say it. You're the king. And we pray and we ask his kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do we recognize his rule and his reign in us? God has been preparing this gift for us for many years. 700 years at least as we see from Isaiah. The coming of the Messiah to come to us. It's a gift that he's been waiting to give us. And 2,000 years ago he gave it to us. But there's another gift that he's also waiting to give us. There's a greater gift even perhaps than this gift. And so far it's been 2,000 years and counting. And God still hasn't given us this gift. But he promises his coming just like he promised this 700 years ago. And that's Christ's return.
1: Because we know that his
0: kingdom is here at work in this world, but it's not completed yet. It's not here in its entirety and in its fullness. And we are waiting for that day in which the rule and the reign of God is complete. And there will be shalom, peace in this world. And when I say peace, I mean the fullest sense of peace, uh, the shalom sense of peace, a completeness. That the, the universe and human beings in particular will be as God intended us to be. We'll live lives of joy and fullness as we were supposed to from the beginning. We're awaiting that day in which Christ will return and establish his eternal kingdom. So it's come, but we're waiting for its coming in fullness. And it's a gift that God's been preparing for a long time. And friends, I think just like us, when we prepare a gift and give it to someone we love and sit there with a big smile as they tear open the present, so God is going to rejoice over us in that day to come. And may we keep our hope and our focus there. He's the fulfillment of the ages, and we're still waiting for this great gift in its fullness. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you so much for the word. Thank you so much for the blessing of the Kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God, your eternal government which is not equal to any government of this world which rise and fall overnight at times. Instead, Lord, we look to you who have established the kingdom in righteousness and justice and are spreading this good news and this reign of Jesus over all nations. And so this morning, Lord, even as we gather We celebrate not only your work here in our own city, but your work through our missionaries to the far ends of the earth. Lord, may we look to our own lives, recognize the lordship of Christ, and see what areas we are holding back in, and we are not submitting to your perfect reign, even as we await the day of perfect shalom for your people. Thank you, Father. Fill us with this hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.